but he doesn't know him. And, and so often when we're in the place of our lives where everything is just comfortable and everything is the status quo, and, and uh, especially as you would picture like a, a child and their parents care, you know, there, there isn't a worry in the world. There's almost no need for God. He's just, he's there and he's real and there's a respect for him. But God has a way of moving us out of those comfort places into a place where we actually need him. And it's there that we actually need him, that he comes into our lives and he begins to become our own. He's not the God that we heard of from our parents. He's not the God of the pre preacher on the radio or, or the God who uh, we heard about once in church. But he, he must at some point in our lives become absolutely our own. As though there is no one else. There's no, um, no one else in the world that he even is interested in. But he is my God, my Lord and my God. And he has a way of doing that and uh, bringing us out from whatever it is that shelters us from coming to that place. And that's exactly what he's doing in Jacob's life at this point. And so it says in verse 11, as he now goes towards Haran, that he lighted upon a certain place and he tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and he put them for his pillows. Doesn't sound like Celie is going to be um, looking for her patent rights from him, but it says that he laid down in that place to sleep. It tells us there that he just kind of lighted upon a place. So this wasn't calculated in any way. He didn't uh, map out his journey. He just kind of comes into the place, and it turns out that while he's uh, you know, coming to it, that sunset comes, and he thinks, well, this is as safe a place or as good a place as any. Um, but the, the thing that strikes me in this is that he's absolutely being led is that there's no calculation in where he's going to stay, but God knows exactly where he is. And God has him in this place at this time, and God has him there for a divine appointment. Something's about to happen in his life that's going to change his life forever, and he has no idea uh, that in this time of refuge, when he no doubt feels absolutely lost, uh, what's going on in Jacob's head at this time? He's like, I shouldn't be here. This is a result of my sin. I'm in this place right now because of my sin. I should be at home. I should be with Isaac. I should be following after the sheep. I should know where my next meal is going to come from. All, all of his whole life has just been turned upside down. It's unstable. And he's blaming himself. This is my fault and Rebecca's fault because of what we did in the whole thing. But it's not. He's not lost. God knows exactly where he is, and God has been waiting for this moment to get Isaac, or Jacob completely alone for the sake of what's going to come and to be in his life. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I know that I can. I can look over the course of, of my walk with the Lord over the past 16, 17 years, and I can think of specific moments and specific times and places where I was and I felt like I was completely lost that I was so far outside of the will of God and I don't know how I got here. I don't know, uh, you know, how to get back. Just complete and utter um, desolation. This is just, God, you're going to have to start completely over. The GPS is saying recalculating. There's nothing about this that, that could possibly be in your plan. And really just feeling that feeling of complete lost. But then 
to, to let a few years pass or to come to where I am today and to, to now remember those moments that were so dark and to realize that though I felt like I was completely lost, God knew exactly where I was. And that those moments, even those darkest moments, were absolutely necessary in the, the forming and the leading of his plan to bring me to where I am now. And where I am now, I could feel lost. But God knows right where I am. And so for Jacob, God knows. He lighted upon the place. It just happened to be here. I mean, you don't know why. It's my fault. I shouldn't be. But God knows where he is. And now notice what happened in verse 12. It says that he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth. It could be a staircase, a ladder, some, some, you get the idea, the picture. And it says the top of it reached to heaven. And so the base of the ladder is on the earth. And then um, the, the top of the ladder reaches up and ascends all the way up into the heavens. It's always the order. The earth is, is the bottom and the heavens are the top. And it says uh, that the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And so there is interaction or there is relationship uh, though those that are on earth cannot see it with their physical eyes, there is an interaction that takes place between heaven and earth. And it says that, behold, the Lord stood above it. And don't just pass that over as, as just a description of the scene, but that is absolutely uh, paramount to, to, to all. And that is that God is over everything, that there is nothing that he is not over. So if you have earth on the bottom, and then above that you have the heavens, and then above that you have God, because he's the one that is seated over all. Like it says in Ephesians, it says that he is far above all principality and power and the rulers uh, of this world and that which is to come. And so he stood above it and now he speaks to Jacob. And here's his word to Jacob in verse 13. He said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. Notice that he pauses there. He doesn't yet call himself the God of Jacob. And I believe that that's uh, on purpose as well. Uh, not just because he's talking to Jacob, but because in, you know, in reality, he really wasn't the God of Jacob yet. I mean, he, he was probably saved. He's probably a Christian, so to speak, and all the rest. But it's going to be many years before Jacob really lays down lordship over his own life and concedes it to the hand of the living God. It won't be until 20 years, in fact, from now uh, when he returns from Haran and wrestles with God all night long. And there's that night, uh, another exchange that happens between Jacob and his God. And, and it's then that Jacob really lays it down and, he, and God becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He identifies himself to Jacob. And then the promise given and reestablished the promise that was given to Abraham. He says, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so the same exact promise that was given to Abraham, then transferred to Isaac, is now put upon Jacob. 
And it will go no further than this. It doesn't have to because it will be Jacob that will have the 12 uh, sons that will become the 12 tribes uh, of Israel, um, so to speak. And so uh, Jacob will be the final patriarch, so to speak, father uh, of his seed. The nation will begin to expand. And so now the, the word goes from, uh, the promise goes from the generic, that is what God will do with Israel as a nation, to now what God is going to do for Jacob personally in verse 15. He says, and behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. Now, that's a great promise, isn't it? God makes that promise. He says, I, you, you've made a, a covenant with me. You belong to me. And he says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to keep you in all places whither thou goest. And I want you to mark that in, 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 at least in your mind, if not in your Bible as well, because there are times that we come to uh, crossroads in our lives where we have no idea uh, what is the right way for us to go or um, what is the will of God for me at this juncture. Um, as much as I hate roadblocks or dead ends, I mean, there's something about a dead end that is so discouraging, isn't it? You just you go into work and you get fired or laid off and, you know, uh, <laughs> or, you know, your house burns down or, you know, or something, you know, and that's a dead end, you know, things in our life where, you know, we're, we're going a certain direction and it just stops and, and it hurts. Like those things are never fun, but the, there's something at least a little bit easy about it is that I don't have to make a choice. The choice has been made for me, uh, that something's about to happen. And because I'm clueless, I have an easy time just believing that God's going to have to come through and you just kind of have to take the next step and, and he goes. That's easy in a sense. What's hard is when you have a crossroads, meaning you're, coming, you're going along the narrow path and you come, come up to a point and now you see and you look to the, just a, a T and you look to the right and it's straight as an arrow and narrow is all you can imagine. And you look to the left, and it's the same exact thing. It's straight as an arrow. You know, narrow is all can get out. And you cannot discern by looking at each path which way God is leading. Which one of these is the narrow road that leads to life? And you think they can't be more opposite. One goes east and one goes west. There's no way that these two things end up in the same place. So what do I do? And, and you wish you could just stand there, but you can't. You can't stay five years at a crossroads and just wait until there's more light. There, there is no more light. You've got to move. And there's times in our lives, each of us, that we come to those type of crossroads where the, where the will isn't clear, the way isn't, isn't made plain. So what do you do in those instances? Well, obviously, you pray. You never move uh, independent of God, saying, well, I'm a Republican, I go right. <laughs> you know, that's just the way we do things around here, or bubblegum, bubblegum, in a dish. You know, but we pray, and we ask God, absolutely, God, I want to be in the center of your will. Not for one minute, Lord, do I want to find my life in a place where I am not where you want me to be. Um, there, there is nothing worse than to be outside of the will of God for your life. And so you pray and you ask God, genuine, I want to know where you are in this. If there is no direction from there, then you move, you go. And what I call that is I call that a Psalm 1 instance, or you could even attach this verse to it. In Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the word of the Lord, and in his word does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And here it is. And whatsoever he doeth 
will prosper. And that's what God is saying to Jacob here. He's saying, listen, I, will, I am with you and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. And there is a place for that in the Christian faith, a huge place for it. When we don't know which is the right way to go, and we pray and we sincerely want the will of God for our lives, and we know that we're not violating something that he's spoken or something that we already know is wrong, that we can trust and walk by faith in the fact that he is going to lead us uh, and he's going to be with us and he's going to keep us regardless of that. And so I will keep thee in all places where you go and will bring you again into this land for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And that again is another great comfort for me because well, the things that he has spoken to Jacob of take a lot longer than the lifespan of Jacob. <laughs> in other words, in order for God to be with Jacob this long means at least until I die <laughs> on this world, you're going to be with me. And uh, uh, really, those things will never be done. And so God is still with Jacob, essentially. And so it says in verse 16, then, that Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Now, three things happened to Jacob in this encounter that he had with God uh, here in this passage. The first uh, thing that happened for Jacob that had never happened for Jacob before in his life up to this time, and, and mind you, he's at least 60 years old at the time that this happened. He's probably even older than that. Maybe he could be as much as 80, some uh, think 86, 87 years old at this point, which, you know, begins to blow your mind and you think, well, the guy, you know, this is real failure to launch here, not even married yet. And, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but when you do the, the math with the ages of the people and when things happened, you know, he's, he's not a young 30-year-old uh, youth spry and, and all, he's, he's getting up there. But a couple things that have never happened before in Jacob's life. Number one is, is he saw for the first time the reality that there is a direct relationship between heaven and earth. He sees this ladder and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And, and prior to this, you know, it was just this is earth. You know, and we're all kind of the same way. You know, we, this is the real world. God helps those who help themselves. You know, we, we pick ourselves up from our bootstraps. We, we make our plans. We go for the future. And you got one life to live. Make the most of it. And that's kind of just kind of the mentality that we have because we, this is the world that we live in. But the reality for everyone is that there is a relationship between heaven and earth and that there are spiritual strings attached to the things that happen and that are done on earth. That the greater kingdom is the heavenly kingdom. It is above, it is higher than the earth. And it's important that we understand that and may we never lose awareness that heaven is real. When we lose sight of that, we get lost. It's kind of like uh, a farmer who, who sows a field. Have you ever driven past like a cornfield or an apple orchard and you see how, how straight the, the crop rows are? And, and sometimes you think, how in the world is that even possible, you know, to be able to, to lay out a row of crops and make it that absolutely straight? And the way that that's done is that when the tractor, uh, the farmer in his tractor gets set to, 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 you know, to sow a line of field, he sets his eye, modern tractors use lasers, but, you know, we'll go back 
a few years, sets his eye on a singular point on the other side of the field, and then he pushes go, and he never takes his eyes off of that point the entire time that he's moving from one side of the field to the other. Uh, and he aims his tractor and his eyes exactly at that point. And then he gets to the other side. Now, what if that same farmer seeking to plow a straight line looked down at the ground while he was uh, driving his tractor across? It would be impossible. He would not be able to, to do that. And, and, and that is essentially, for you and I, uh, a, a real key to life, is that if we take our eyes off of the fact that heaven is real, and that that is the eternal, and that this is temporary, and that when you lay the span of eternity against the 70, maybe 80 years or 90 that we have in this world, what we are in this world is nothing but a breath. And if we become too consumed in what is in the here and now, then we are absolutely going to be lost. We will not have a straight path for our feet. Our eyes must be fixed on heaven. And for the first time in this place, Jacob realizes there is a heaven. There is an invisible realm. And the scripture is very, very clear that that is the higher and the greater realm. And so he sees that for the very first time. The second thing that he um, realizes for the first time here is that he saw his life in the hand of him who was over all and was told, though maybe he didn't even realize it yet, that he existed for the purpose of God. Is that he realized that he wasn't the shaper of his own destiny. That it wasn't as though, uh, you know, okay, um, you know, God's just going to bless my plans and whatever I choose. But he, he realized, no, God knows me. And God made me. And he wired everything in me, the personality that I am, uh, my strengths and weaknesses, my likes and dislikes. Everything that I am is perfectly calculated by God according to the plan that he has for my life. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God has before ordained good works that we should walk in them. And so God knows us, and he has a plan for us. It's not an accident, and he's not just looking for a place. Sometimes you can get that sense, can't you? That God just has to find a place for me. You know, he's got a plan for some people, but he's got to find a place for me. You know, and so it's ever this thing of looking for my niche. Where am I going to find a place? Not so. And Jacob, for the first time here, realizes, as God says, no, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the same plan that I've had for you, it was before you were even born that that plan was established. And I'm going to be with you in this thing, and I will bring you back to this land. It is laid out, and it is calculated. And happy is the man that realizes that. That, that their life is not an accident. We are not just wandering through this world. You know, maybe we'll do something for God. Maybe he'll lead us in some way. No, there's a plan. And it's the wise Christian that takes that realization and brings it back to God and says, God, what do you have for me? And Lord, put my heart and my feet in a place wherein there's nothing else for me but your will and your plan for my life. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. And so Jacob uh, um, sees that for the very first time. And then third of all uh, in this is that he saw his life for, or not, not his life, but he saw this life for what it is. And what this life is, is that it is a passage between earth and heaven. He says that in verse 17. He says, surely this is the house of God. This is the gateway to God. Not just Bethel, the place where he is, but this entire life. And realize that. 
Realize that, Christian man, here this morning, is that this entire lifespan that you and I live on this world is nothing more than a gateway into the eternal life which is to come. This is not life. This is the shadow. This is the precursor. Life is what is to come. And everything in this world serves to prepare us for that world which is to come. Starting with our salvation, which is our admittance into uh, that place. And then beyond that, it's all preparation for what God has ordained for our eternity. Every trial, every lesson, every difficulty, every hardship, every struggle, every wrestling match, everything that we learn along the way, all of the faith that we exercise, all of the gifts that we cultivate and use, all of the fruit that we bear, all of what happens in this life is in preparation for that which is to come. Now, if we realize that, then what that affords us is, first of all, some perspective, right? Because it keeps us from becoming too consumed with self in the here and now, because we realize that this life isn't about us. It also affords us a little bit of joy in the midst of great difficulty. Because when we realize that this life is not intended to be easy, and it's not intended to be rose, you know, a rosy path and, and filled with uh, you know, every good thing always happening and everything always working out, then we can see you know, what, through the difficulty of things that this all serves to prepare me for something that's, that's yet to come. And it'll be worth it in the end. In Romans chapter 8, I think it's right around verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For I perceive that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so everything that we go through in this life, it, it, it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And if we can understand that, uh, then it affords us the ability to have some joy in it. Um, on my mind lately has been Psalm 73. It's, a, it's one of the famous psalms. I've always said if I ever teach through the book of Psalms, I probably won't hit every one of them. Uh, you know, it'll be just the, 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 the ones that, you know, f for me are the most alive or that seem the most important. And Psalm 73 would certainly be in that list of, uh, of, of most important psalms. It's a psalm of Asaph where he says, um, he says, my feet had almost slipped and I almost perished out of the way. I almost stopped following God when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, there's no pain in their death. They don't have sudden changes in their life. They just increase and add riches to riches. Nothing go ever goes wrong for them. They're filled with pride and violence and everything just seems to fall right in their lap and everything goes right. And he says, with me, I'm seeking to follow God. I'm walking in his path, his ways. I'm seeking to do what's right. And my whole life is turning upside down constantly. I never have two nickels to rub together and, you know, and the, and the whole thing. And he says, when I, when I thought to try to, to, to understand the logic behind why this happens, he says it was too heavy for me. He says it started to crush my heart. And furthermore, he said I couldn't even talk about it with anyone because if I did, then I'd be putting God's reputation at stake. And so here I'm suffering in this feeling that, that, that the, the wicked are, are, are flourishing and here I am floundering and what do I do with all this? And then he says this, he says, until I stepped into the sanctuary of God. 
That is the presence of God, not, not church. He's not saying until I went to church one Sunday and, you know. No, the sanctuary of God is his presence. And his presence is anywhere that you are and you become aware of his presence. It could be in your car. It could be right here. It could be while you're walking somewhere. It could be when you wake up in the, in the night and it's quiet before you, your head hits the pillow. That's the sanctuary of God. And, and he said, when I came into the presence of God, everything made sense. And here's why. He said, because I realized their end, that everything that they have is for this world, for the here and now, and they've got no hope of anything that is yet to come in the future, wherein all that we have is yet to come and yet to be. And he, and he finishes the psalm in a much different demeanor and tone than how he started it. And it's important that we realize that this world is nothing more than a gateway to God. That's it. That's all it is. It is one big fat test. And for each one of us that's here this morning, you're in one of three places. You are either going into a trial or you are in a trial or you're coming out of a trial, which then will lead you to be going into a trial. <laughs> it's one of three places in this. But, but it's, for, it's working for us in exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And if we lose sight of that, then we lose perspective and we lose joy. And so Jacob realizes for the first time, he says, um, this, this is the gateway to God, and, and, and I didn't even know it, the gate of heaven. And so it says then in verse 18, it says, And so Jacob arose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put for his pillows... So funny, it says, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. I don't get it. He, he remembered oil and forgot a pillow. You would think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, go to EMS, get one of those things that tucks into like the size of an egg, you know, or something that, you know, you open up the case and boom, a pillow, you know, but he, he has oil. He doesn't have any a pillow. Like, Where do you get oil in the middle of the desert? But I guess in that part of the world. Oil's a little more readily available, depending on what kind. So it says that he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. Beth, whenever you see Beth in the Bible, like Bethlehem or Bet Shean or uh, any of the places where it says Beth, it's, uh, it's house of, and then El is God. And so he calls the place the house of God. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow now, saying... If God will be with me, and that you you know that could better be translated since, not a not an if, not as though he's giving God a proposition. Although I wouldn't put it past Jacob, uh, it's kind of fitting with his character. But he's saying if or since God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. Or since, you know, God is going to do all these things for me, then the Lord will be my God. Now, this is, uh, you know, a mark of supreme and monumental faith on the part of Jacob. And if you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, uh, then I'll just obviously put it out there that I'm being extremely sarcastic in this whole thing. Um, this is a very, very, very young and immature Christian uh, saying these things, making a vow or making a deal with God. And he's basically saying to God that, okay, if you're going to feed me, if you're going to clothe me, if you're going to keep me in all the places I go and bring me back here in peace, 
then I'll follow you. The you're getting a deal, God, is kind of the, the mentality. It's like, all right, God, you want my life. My life is pretty valuable. So if you want it, then food, clothes, leading, and return to my father's house in peace. If you fulfill those conditions, God, then, you know, then, uh, uh, then, then you can have me. Then that will be my life. This is a very, very immature and shallow dedication to God. One of the things that I love about him, and it's seen very clearly in Jesus turning water into wine. Remember, remember that first miracle that Jesus did? And, and, and the response to that miracle by those that were in the house is that they said, you, you know, most people put out the good wine first and they save uh, the, the, the bad wine for when everybody's well drunk and they can't tell the difference anymore. But you have saved the best for last. And that's always what God does in every life. When he begins a work in the life, it's almost like we, get the, we see the mere edges and it's, it's so far and distant and he seems so mysterious and so invisible and so uninvolved. And then as we walk with him, his glory increases, his size increases, his word increases, his voice is, is louder and, and clearer, his path makes more sense. The life becomes stable and, and it's like the, the further we go with him, he only becomes more glorious. Nothing else in the world is like that. Everything else in the world, the glory of it is put forth at the front and it, 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 it sells itself to you. And then once you have it, then you see what's underneath. And you go, all right, now I see what, what I bought. And, you know, the whole thing. The only thing that will forever increasingly grow in glory is God himself. And for every one of us, he starts off much like Jacob in this. Okay, well, God, are you going to give me clothes? Are you going to give me food? God, are you going to make sure there's a paycheck and a job? God, are you going to make sure that there's some peace in my life and that, 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 I, that I get where I'm supposed to go? And every one of those things is an end. I want this. And God is the means to bring me to that end. God, you're the one that's going to supply these things. And if you'll supply these things, then I'll follow you. But a beautiful thing happens in a person that cultivates a relationship with God. That little by little and over time, the desire and the treasure shifts from being all of those things to being God himself. And all of those other things become nothing. Like, oh, I don't care. You know, food, raiment, clothing. You know, yeah, that, that's there. It's always been there. It's always going to be. Those things will be. But God, that's where the treasure is. That's where the glory is. That's where life is found. It's not, I am the way to the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so often we have the tendency that we can use God to get something else that we want in this life. But happy is the person that comes to the realization that it is God, that he is everything that I need and everything that I want in this life. And there's nothing else. And God will do that in every life. He does that in every life that carefully walks with him and gets to know who he is. And so Jacob makes this very mature vow uh, that if you do these things, then I'll follow you, God. Listen, when God bought your life, he wasn't getting a deal. Did you know that? <laughs> you know, when he agreed to trade his son, who was perfect and beloved of him, in order to get you, he didn't do it because there was some treasure that he saw in you that was, I have to have that. He did it out of pure love and nothing else. And he did it purely by grace 
and by nothing that we could ever deserve or earn. It is completely his love that caused him to purchase our lives. And when that grips us, and it takes some time for some of us for that to grip us, he becomes the infinite treasure of all things in life. There is nothing greater or higher. So Jacob, he says now, um, verse 22, and this stone which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. I've built you a church, God. Here it is. Very glorious. I'm build a, one of those rock, what do they call those rock monuments? <laughs> Pour some oil on it. And this is going to be the church of God. And of all that you shall give me, I will surely give the tenth or the tithe unto you. And so he's really growing now. I mean, now he's a tithing Christian. I mean, you, you know, that's how people measure it in the world. Do you go to church every Sunday? Yeah, I go to church. Do you give a tenth of every? Yeah, I give a tenth. Whoa, he's radical, you know. And, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, now, and now Jacob's reached that point. He is a tithing Christian in, in the whole thing. This is the second mention of this, by the way in the Bible. Um, Abraham had done the same thing. You know, Abraham, when he met Melchizedek after the slaughter of the kings, uh, Abraham gave a tenth of all the spoils, everything of his increase, and he gave it unto the Lord. Here we see it for the second time. Later, it will become a principle. It's something that's kind of uh, reaffirmed and established throughout the Bible as a principle. It is law under Mosaic, but not necessarily under the new covenant, but it is a principle that's upheld uh, within the Bible. By the time you come to the New Testament, the New Testament principle of giving is, 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 is much uh, more free than just the tithe. It's, the, the New Testament principle, Paul says, whatever a man so purposes in his heart, let him lay up in store, uh, set it aside, so to speak, and let him give it uh, as, as he's led of the Lord. And it says that God loves a cheerful giver. And so under the new covenant, we're not under the law by any stretch that we have to tithe or give the tenth of our income. However, it is a principle in the Bible that goes before the law. In other words, we see it with Abraham and Jacob here. And it's something that goes beyond the law in terms of God giving promise concerning the tithe. In Malachi chapter 3, and I'd encourage, we're not going to take the time to go there and read it uh, on this occasion, but in, in Malachi chapter 3, God, for the only time in all of the Bible, says, I give you permission to test me. Every other place in the Bible, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, or don't test the Lord. But God says in this one area, I give you permission to test me. And he says, concerning the tithe, he says, if you'll give to me the tithe, which he says, by the way, is mine. The tenth is mine. It's not yours. It's mine. A tenth of everything you have already belongs to me. You're not giving me a tenth of what's yours. You're giving me back what's mine already. That's the principle uh, that God gives in the whole thing. And he says, but if you're faithful to do that, then, you can test me in this, you'll see that you will always have enough. That you'll see to it that your storehouses are always full. There's always plenty of uh, new wine, uh, grape juice. That's the, the, you know, the harvest of the crops. And, and he gives that uh, promise there. And uh, I just remember hearing uh, Chuck Smith, or very early in my, my Christian life, teach on that passage. And his comment on it was this. He just said, try it. You'll like it. 
<laughs> and, uh, and I can stand on the other side now of many years and I can say the same thing to you is that we have never, uh, I mean, I'm an uneducated, uh, really, if you knew how uneducated and how unprofessional and how unqualified I am uh, to be anything in this world, <laughs> you would probably not be here listening to me right now. You know, I can almost guarantee you that. But I can tell you that God has always supplied every one of our needs. And, and, and then beyond that, not just our needs, but he's given to us, um, I'm not saying in wealth by any stretch, but when I look at what I have versus what I deserve or what I could earn on my own, I see that God has been extremely gracious. And the only thing that I can say is, and, I, and not even perfectly, is that we've upheld that principle in our lives, uh, um, at least as much as we can or could, or could remember, or smart enough to, or whatever. And so he says, I will surely give then the 10th to you. We'll pause there uh, for today. I wanted to get through 29 as well, but I don't want to speed through it. So we'll stop there and, uh, and we'll go through um, Jacob's uh, attaining of a wife and some great, great things in chapter 29 that we will see um, next week when we pick up, pick up the narrative here in it. So...